would please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Through absolutely no planning or foresight on my behalf, I realized this week that the text we would be in today on Thanksgiving weekend is the prayer of gratefulness of David after God had given him the Davidic covenant as it's known. So we get to look at David's prayer of gratitude in 2 Samuel 7 verses 18 through 29. Dale Ralph Davis has entitled the passage before us this morning as Sit Down and Stand on God's Promises. It becomes immediately apparent as we go through this text that David is overwhelmed by what God has already done for him and for his people Israel. He is completely and overwhelmingly stirred up deep in his heart over the whole word of the Lord just given to him through Nathan the prophet. Can it be, with a question mark and an exclamation point in the first half of chapter 7, God has just made a covenant with him. God has just promised to make David a dynasty that will be established and made sure and rule forever. Death will not annul it. Sin will not destroy it. And time will will not exhaust it. How can this be? God has promised to somehow work out his grand plan, David thinks, through my dynastic line. David knows that God has cracked open the door of that grand redemptive purpose and told him that somehow his own family line will play a huge part in it all. But this is so befuddling to David in so many ways. Instead of David building the Lord a house and temple, which he wanted to do, if you remember, he hears that his offering, that his offspring will build a house for the Lord's name. When David's future offspring commit iniquity, God will discipline him. But God's steadfast love will not depart from him. When David considers all the wind questions, God says, Your throne shall be established forever, in verse 6 of this chapter. And so overwhelmed and stirred up and really befuddled, Seeing that God turned the tables on his idea to build the Lord a house, turning it so that now he sees an opportunity for God to communicate this startling covenant promise, and David recognizes that. So if you are able, would you please stand as I read 2 Samuel 7, verses 18 through 29. From the English Standard Version. Then King David went in 
and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet, this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you establish for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you've spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken, and your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Can you hear David's heart in this incredible prayer? It's impossible not to. We read in verse 18 that then David went in and sat before the Lord. And several of you chuckled. You should. This is so descriptive of how he feels. What the Lord had declared to David moved David to such an extent that a man that hardly ever sat down for anything realized the only thing he could do was go sit before his God. What the Lord had promised David literally ignited his praises and his prayers. Notice first that God used his prophet Nathan to deliver his message to David in the first part of this chapter, this covenant that God was making. Nathan was... God's voice. But David did not reply to God through Nathan. He went directly to him. 
Matthew Henry comments that when ministers deliver God's message to us, it's not to them, but to God, that our hearts may reply. He understands the language of the heart, and to him we may come boldly. Now this prayer here in the second part of chapter 7 is really in two parts. And it's really easy to notice. Many of you probably did. In the first part, David responds to what, da- what God has told him. He responds with praise, marveling at the grace of God in verses 18 through 24. It's praise, all of it. And then second, David responds with petition praying for the word of God he had just heard to be what? To be converted into what we could say is historic reality in the last section, verses 25 through 29. So you have the first part is praise, the second part is petition. Oh, maybe this is a good picture of what prayer is. There's all through the Bible are examples of this, but this is the one, of mo- one of the most exuberant. So the praise is in verses 18 through 24. Now, do you think it's significant that David begins with this obvious sense of what we could really say is wonder? There's a sense of wonder here, and that's how he begins. He's still in a state of being completely surprised um, Surprise Joy. It sounds like the title of a C.S. Lewis book. Surprised by Joy. A common theme amongst people who know God and understand His ways and see His faithfulness when everything looks so impossible. But in this situation, wow. He does not begin his prayer with a list of things he wants. I don't know about you, but I highlighted that. That observation is really, really important. Instead, he is in really breathless, and he's staggering under the reality of God's grace. And so we enter into verses 18 through 22. And here in this part, he's praising God for his plan. How can you tell when somebody has really seen the reality of God's grace? How would you answer that? How can you tell when somebody has really seen the reality of God's grace? Well, this is a picture of it right here. You kind of see this person staggering in humility before the one who is so great and gracious. Boldness is boldest when it's acting or speaking out of true humility. Yes, David goes before God boldly, but he does so with an attitude of complete humility. It's 
not demanding anything. His words should resound in our hearts and our understanding. Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? What is he remembering? His life goal was hanging around with sheep as a young man. And God intervened. And David recognizes that. In the last part of verse 18, we see that David's first way of praising God for God's gracious plan is to praise God for his previous grace to him. There's time here. We're going to see that he praises God for his previous grace, and then he praises God for the grace that is promised, and then he praises God for his Sovereign grace, the big picture. And you can just see this coming out of his head and his heart, and it expands his whole view of the God that he already knows is great. His previous grace, that he's done all this to a lowly shepherd. Bethlehem, David's home town, was only six miles from Jerusalem where he is now. Now, get this. But for David, that six miles covered 21 chapters over 10 years of dangerous situations and escapes, treachery, folly, despair, slander. Yet here he was. Do you see that picture? From Bethlehem, six miles. To Jerusalem, 10 years, 21 chapters here from when we first got David on the scene. So then in verse 19, David's second way of praising God for his gracious plan is to recognize promised grace in the future. Verse 19, and yet this was a small thing. In your eyes, O Lord God, you have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this instruction is for mankind. Let's explain this. So, as if preserving David from hundreds of deaths already was altogether too trivial, the Lord had committed himself to a forever promise in regards to David's dynasty. But David here is especially excited over the role that his dynasty will play in all of human history. Unexpected is not the right term. He's blown away by this promise, as any of us should be or would be. The English Standard Version says this is instruction for mankind. Check what yours says if it's different. The language here is such that the various English translations sound quite different here because it's a weird phrase. 
The New American Standard says, and this is the custom of man. The NIV says, is this your usual way of dealing with men? And the King James and the New King James says, is this the manner of men? Literally, this reads, and this is the Torah of man. What? In other words, this is the law of man. The best reading does not make this into a question here. And the Torah here deals with the content, not manner or custom. So, really, the NAS, the NIV, and the New King James, and the King James probably miss here the mark just a little bit. But it's interesting to to go on and see what this is saying. This refers back to God's promise about David's dynasty in verses 12 through 16 of the covenant that God gave him. It's the Torah, the law of man, because man is the beneficiary of the content of this law. What is? This promise of God working through his dynasty. This is the way that God wants to work. So, and this is the charter for humanity is probably the best way to render this phrase. If you allow yourself to write in your text of the Bible, put it in there. And this is the charter for humanity is probably the best way to render it. In other words, the kingship, the Lord guaranteed David's dynasty, would not only bring rest to Israel... That was promised back in verses 10 and 11 of the covenant. But would extend the Lord's work and benefits to whom? All of humanity. The Davidic dynasty was to be the mechanism for fulfilling the Abrahamic promise of blessing to all the families of the earth. Quote, unquote. Genesis 12, 3. Let me say that again. The Davidic dynasty was to be the mechanism for fulfilling the Abrahamic promise of blessing to all the families of the earth. And David sees at least this much of what God promised, and he is unbelievably excited about this promised grace. Wow! To be such a vital part of God's big redemptive plan. You see... He sees the dots are connecting. How is this promised future gift of a Messiah going to come? Well, he sees the part his dynasty is going to play. Could he be bringing in the one promised? Well, he's coming to that realization pretty fast. And it is literally blowing his mind that through his line, God's redemptive plan will be brought to completion as far as the giving of the one who has to come. But David's not through yet. He demonstrates a third way of praising God for God's gracious plan in verses 20 and 21. Verse 20. 
And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. The word know here is not just that God knows about David or even knows what David has done and will do. This knowing is really a past tense knowing, a choosing, a selecting, a singling out kind of intimate knowing. So David is saying, you yourself has sing- have singled out your servant, O Lord. And then he goes on to say, why? In verse 21, because of your promise and according to your own heart or will, you, O God, have brought about all this greatness and make your servant know it. And what is this? David is praising God for what? His sovereign grace. God's kingdom plan arises solely, only out of the Lord's choice and desire. God's heart, not from any human ingenuity, least of all David's. And that's what he's saying. He realizes that. He praises God for that. In verse 22, David wonders at mar- and marvels at God's previous grace to him, God's promised grace to the world through his, his dynastic line, and God's sovereign grace in it all. And he burst into the climax here in verse 22. Therefore, You are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we've heard with our ears. I want to read you some comments by Dale Ralph Davis on this. So David begins his prayer by marveling at Yahweh's gracious plan. David is nearly incredulous that Yahweh preserved him to this point, that he has made hard promises about his dynasty that will endure the treacheries of history and embrace the whole of humanity. And Yahweh has done it simply because he wanted to do it. Yahweh has taken David's breath away. What can David say? Don't you hear the sense of helplessness in David's praise? What more can David say to you? You ever felt like that? The happy frustration he feels. Yahweh's massive grace and deed in verse 18 and word in verse 19 and desire in verses 20 through 21 really has doomed David's worship to inadequacy. What can he do but begin with, who am I? And end with, there is no God besides you. That's the book ends this. The perfect combination, he says, of frustration and fidelity, which all of us should know as his people. God has impressed him. Can we say that? That describes it. There's a historical note as well. 
Walter Kaiser tells how Louis XIV requested that his funeral in the Cathedral of Notre Dame all would be darkened except for one candle burning on his casket at the front. Now, I realize that this mention of this king, that really you should have heard about it in world history and other places, but some of you don't, aren't quite up on how great this guy was and thought he was. That's enough to know, don't worry. However, when the court preacher rose to give the funeral oration, he strode over to the casket, snuffed out the light, and began his message with, only God is great. Only God is great. But David didn't need a funeral to make the point, see. He simply reviewed Yahweh's grace and went away muttering, only God is great. And there's a lesson here that that really screams out of this text, and that is that when you see God's grace, when you really see it, it always leads to doxology. Praise. So in verses 18 through 22, God praises, David praises God for God's plan. But then in verses 23 and 24, David's still praising God, but he praises God for God's people. So first is his plan, then it's his people. Verses 23 and 24 say, And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people, Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. So we see first in verse 23 that David knows Israel is unique because she is redeemed Israel, the one unique nation on the earth whom God went to redeem. And at the end of this verse, we read, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt. Now, in that phrase, we, we get a little lesson here on what redeem means, what redemption means. Both aspects of redemption are mentioned here. To be redeemed, you're redeemed from something and redeemed for something else. Why did God liberate Israel from bondage in Egypt? In order that they might belong to a new master. Liberation and possession. That's what biblical redemption is. Liberation and possession. And the very first thing that David praises God for here in verse 23 is that God went to redeem this nation. Why? To be his people. He liberates them so that they would be bound to him. He's the creator. He knows why we were made. To glorify him and enjoy him forever. And one way of saying this, and it's a statement worth pondering, is... 
that God grants his people freedom, but not independence. God's people belong to him, the Lord. The New Testament says it this way. It says it lots of ways, but these are two passages that put it together. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. Knowing therefore that you were ransomed, Peter's writing to this church, group of churches, knowing that you were ransomed or redeemed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. And then in 1 Corinthians 6, last part of verse 19 and first part of verse 20, Paul writes, You are not your own, for you were bought with the price. These are not real popular passages in evangelicalism today. But it's the truth. We were redeemed from to belong to the Lord. In verse 24, we see that David praises God for his people because they are preserved as well as redeemed. You notice how David has this great sense of of seeing how time is used by God to reveal his redemptive plan in his own life and in the, the life of the people that he brought to himself. He not only redeemed them, but he preserved He preserves as well. The key words here are established by God. And this is the same word that was used three times in the covenant in verses 12 through 16. And we also see the word forever, and that's used three times in verses 13 and 16. And it's used five times in the rest of chapter 7. So David recognizes that Israel is as permanent as his dynasty. Not because... They're so durable. But because the Lord intends to keep them. Important fact for us to remember. Now, David's dynasty is linked to God's provision for Israel. And to God's program for Abraham to bless all the families of the earth through him. The Davidic covenant then is to be the mechanism or the means by which God fulfills both the Abrahamic and Sinaitic covenants. We should understand that Israel being preserved in no way implies every Israelite would be or was a faithful disciple of God. Just as King David's line could be his iniquity forfeit the benefits of the Davidic covenant. We know that it seems like most of the kings following him 
had some issues with this sin. In fact, one of them is in the covenant, you remember, who was pointing to Solomon and said that he would commit iniquity and that God would discipline him. So any individual Israelite by unbelief placed himself outside of the circle of the covenant blessings. Yet God always insisted on preserving a faithful people, even if only a remnant. And that's what we see. God preserves a remnant. He preserves a remnant. He preserves a remnant. Because we are in Christ and in the new covenant, the New Testament says the following in Galatians 3, verse 7, 16, and 29. Know then, Paul writes, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. The offspring here not referring to many, but referring to one who is Christ, Paul writes. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. That's the big picture. Our covenant Lord never tires of reassuring his true people of faith. He knows in this world that we need to hear his reassurance in his word, and we need to hear it often. The shepherd's voice, especially in passages like John 10, display the majesty of a God who preserves, which is what David is testifying to here in 2 Samuel 7. Next, in verses 24, the last part, we see that David praises God for his people because they are privileged. Privileged. He's praising God that they're redeemed, that he's redeemed a people, he preserves his people, and his people are privileged. He says, and you, O Lord, became their God. The words here are similar to, to covenant formulas in the Old Testament. God says to Abram in Genesis 17, 7, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you, to your offspring after you. Covenant wording. In Leviticus 26, 12, God says, And I will walk among you and will be your God. So it is no small thing to say Israel is the people who have the Lord as their God. And did you notice in these verses that the Lord does not just redeem from bondage and keep a remnant through history, but he, the main point is he gives himself to Israel to belong to them, to be their God. So here, David prays, are the Lord's people redeemed, preserved, and privileged? And he's praising God for those three things. As I was looking at this passage, I was kind of asking myself, okay, 
when I think about how God unfolds his plan in the Old Testament, are these things that I would just recognize? It really, it's really helpful to see a passage like this where you can put these elements together about what are important in the promises that God provides and how he will provide a Messiah and that if we're in Christ, we're sons of Abraham. And if you chop it all up, you will not get that message. Now we get to see how this prayer of humble praise to God, how this prayer of wonder, how this prayer of amazement that David offers out ends. What will David petition God for? It's a good question. After all this praise, what will he ask God for? What will David ask God to do after he has praised God for his past, present, and future work? Well, let's read verse 25 through 29 again. And now, O Lord, confirm forever the word that you've spoken. And then he says at the end of that verse, in verse 25, do as you have spoken. And then in verse 29, now therefore may it please you to bless the house of your servant. So the verbs there are, he's asking God to confirm what, you, what he's spoken, to do as you have spoken, and to bless the house of your servant that he has just given David a covenant about. David asked that these astounding promises be converted into historic reality. And he starts off by this, confirm forever the word that you've spoken and do as you have spoken. And then in verse 29, may it please you to bless. Do we need to learn how to pray like this? What is he doing? Prayer pleads promises. What are we to do? And Psalm 90, 89 is an example of this. When the promises of God seem to be denied by the facts of our experience. What do you do? The way it answers, it answers, the way is, it's important you turn the promises into prayers and you plead them before your Lord. And this is still the major task of prayer today, to take God's promises and pray that he will bring them to pass. Why is there so much confusion about this? Because there's a lot. And it seems like today it's really messed up this whole idea. There's confusion because we've got to be certain that any promise that we take this way is a promise that rightly applies to us. Now the extreme example would be, I read 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 through 17, and I take David's promises to me. My line is going to bring about whatever 
well, we know, we know that that happened. The promise was fulfilled 2,000 years ago in Christ. But there's people who interpret this that way. Why? So they can get what they want. They think. I should have it all now. You cannot apply promises to yourself that really don't apply to you as a child of God in Christ in this age. So be careful. God does not promise to extend everyone's territory. God does not promise health to everyone. As probably 99.9% of us will go, boy, that was bright. God does not promise wealth to everyone. God does not promise prosperity to everyone. God does not promise that you will not suffer. God does not promise a peaceful existence on this earth. God does not promise that you can name something and claim it on Jesus' authority. These kind of messages bring in great crowds, but it also means that there's a great many people that are seriously damaged because they have no idea what real faith is. And after those promises don't come true, what happens? Chunk them. Chunk him. And actually turn into an enemy. David's prayer pleads a promise that is rightly understood by David. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we prayed that earlier. Did you catch that? Your kingdom come, your will be done. This is the same prayer that David prays here, that God's name will be held sacred and it will, his name will be magnified throughout the earth. The final king of David's dynasty has already come. But his kingship must yet be fully, publicly, and universally displayed. Is this at the heart of our prayers. What we pray for, boy, this, this hits deep. What we pray for reflects what we really care about on the deepest possible level. God does care, and he wants us to pray about every detail in our life that we struggle with. But does our prayer life truly reflect what God cares most about? His redemptive plan being finally consummated in the return of Christ and the whole creation saying what? Acknowledging he is king 
only him. May his name be lifted up. So, what's at the heart of David's prayer here? It's really, Lord, do as you've promised. That's the heart. In other words, that's why your title here could be David sat down and he stood on the promises of God. I don't know about you, but I needed this badly. We need it to walk on the same path. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, thank you for this powerful text of a man completely undone by your promise to him and the way you would use him and his family in your redemptive plan that through his family line, Christ would come into the world. We thank you as we look to David's prayer for the grace that you've shown us in our past lives. And we pray if we have trouble even thinking of how your grace was displayed to us in bringing us to the knowledge of Christ as our Savior and Lord, that you would open our eyes and rip our hearts apart to show us what was really was going on, what you were doing to humble us before you Admit our need, see your gift of a Savior, and believe on Him. We thank you for the grace that you've promised. And for us, since Christ has already come, it's that He would be displayed in all of creation and lifted up, your name lifted up. And you've made us a part of this purpose to proclaim your gospel to all nations, to all people. And God, we thank you that as we think about all this and how our lives have gone and what we expect from life in the future, that our hope and trust relies on your sovereign grace. You know us. You made us. You know what you created us for. And only you can reveal the truth in our hearts about how we serve you and how faithfulness is so important. And how the love for one another should flow over and be recognized and treasured. Oh God, we we pray for your church. Those who are in Christ, who are, we are literally fulfillments of much of this promise. That we, you have brought us into faith in Christ, the promised one. That you put us in Christ. And we ask that your church demonstrate this truth and not walk in the paths of compromise and misunderstanding. We pray for your guarding and protection as we humbly bow before you and study, listen, learn, and teach your word. God, we thank you for your redemptive plan that we do not deserve to be a part of. By your grace and your mercy, you have placed us into your Son. We ask that you would empower us through your Spirit to walk in a way worthy of our Christ, our Lord.
and to convey the truth of your gospel in every opportunity that you give to us. In humility, we ask these things before you, O oh great God. Amen. Would you please stand for a benediction? May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. You're dismissed.